Father, we are grateful today for this amazing plan that you broke the curse by cursing your own son. You forgive our sin by laying our sins upon him, making him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Father, thank you that he is alive today resurrected from the dead, seated at your right hand, prepare, preparing a place for us. And we look forward to his second coming. The Lord with, with all that's going on in our world today that troubles us and hurts we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And yet, Father, you don't want us just to endure life until heaven. We can enjoy you and all you have for us here. So today, would you help us? Help us to be honest about our lives. Help us to be honest about our relationship with you. Help us to be honest about what we need from you today. <coughs> Lord, you know I need your help. I need strength. I need grace and wisdom. There is absolutely no way I can do effectively what I'm asking you to do today. So glorify yourself and that will bring us great joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. In March of 1863, 18-year-old Charles Appleton Longfellow walked out of his family's home on Brattle Street in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <coughs> and unbeknownst to his family, boarded a train bound for Washington, D.C. He was traveling over 400 miles along the eastern sea coast to join President Lincoln's Union Army. Charles was the oldest of six children. He had one younger brother and five or three younger sisters, one who had already passed away. Less than two years before Charlie left home to join the army, his mother had died tragically in an accident. Her dress caught on fire. His father, Henry Longfellow, 
trying to put out the fire, even using his own body, was burned severely. He grew a beard later to cover the scars on his face from the fire. Charlie joined the army. But in 1863, while having dinner, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow received a telegram that his son, Charlie, had been injured in a battle at Mine Run. Charlie was shot in the left shoulder, but the bullet exited under the right shoulder blade, grazing his spinal column all the way through. He was carried to the hospital and was to be transported to Washington, D.C. for further treatment. Henry and his younger son, Ernest, set out for Washington. They arrived on December 5th. <coughs> Excuse me. They arrived on December 3rd. Charlie arrived two days later on December 5th. The news was not good. Charlie could be paralyzed. Charlie could die. The surgeons were, though, encouraged that if surgery was done, healing would take maybe six months, and possibly he would survive even without paralysis. <laughs> But it was a long way. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was in the hospital that day on Christmas, Christmas bells on that Christmas day and he heard singing of peace on earth taken from Luke 2.14. But as he saw the world, it was a world of cruelty. It was a world of injustice. It was a world of violence that seemed to mock the statement, the truth Peace on earth. <coughs> These are the words he wrote. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing, 
on its labor world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The, then, from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth. Good will to me. You can hear the despair. You can feel it. But some of us know it. Some of us know broken hearts today. Some of us know the despair shared by Longfellow. Even though your circumstances may not be the same as his, your heart cries out, where is this peace? One of the reasons that you and I should love the Christmas story is because it is the cure, the conquering of despair. Looking back at chapter 2 and verse number 10, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great, say that next word. Say it louder. Joy. Louder. Joy. Joy. You're better at it than I am. Great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. Sadly, sadly, tragically, most people, and I would say even most believers, do not enjoy a consistent life of great joy in Christ. But this is one of the reasons that Jesus came, that you and I could have great joy. Notice what they say there. Notice what the text 
says. The text says, stop being afraid. Be not afraid. Stop. Now the grammar of that phrase means they are already terrified. And that's understandable. They're seeing angels. They've never seen this kind of thing before. No telling what their voices sounded like or even the one angel his voice sounded like. If one angel can slay 400,000 people in one night, one angel can, can scare a shepherd to death. But I think there may be more to the phrase that don't just be afraid of the angel. I do know that when it comes to our lives, there are a lot of things we may not even realize that we are afraid of. And those things are robbing you of joy. Some of us are afraid, afraid concerning our finances or the economy. Some of us are afraid because of health issues. Some of us are afraid because of the future. We, we, we don't know what's coming again. And all you have to do is watch the news. One news cycle in the future scares you to death. The earth is either going to freeze or melt. We don't actually wait yet. We're afraid maybe because of the political situation, the environment, the political and, and social environment of our day. Maybe you're afraid of failure. You're afraid to fail as a parent. You're afraid to fail as an employee. You're afraid to fail as a, as a pastor. You're afraid to fail as a, as a husband, as a wife. You're, you're afraid of, of failure. You're afraid that you're not going to get married. Maybe you're afraid you are going to get married. Maybe you're afraid because you're married. Maybe you're afraid of being rejected or disliked. Maybe you're afraid of what's because of things going on in your family. Maybe you're afraid of death. There was another funeral this week of a dear Savior of God, faithful man all his life. R.C. Sproul is his name. R.C. Sproul said this before he died, a couple years ago actually. He said, I'm not afraid to die, but I am afraid of what might happen before I get there. I thought that was a very honest statement from a man who knew he was looking at death. And that may be what, where you are. Maybe you're afraid of God. Now, I understand there is a proper reverence and worship of God that I think the shepherds even demonstrate to this angel. There's, there's that kind of holy awe that I'm afraid is missing in many of our lives and in our society of churches. It needs to be rekindled. But 
But I'm not talking about a reverence. I'm talking about a terror. Uh, a terror in the sense that you're afraid that God's out to get you. Can I tell you something? You know why? You know one of the reasons Jesus came. One of the reasons Jesus came is so that God could be for you rather than against you. God wants the best for your life. He's not out to make you miserable. He's not out to get you. No, no, please understand. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, God wants you to come to Christ. He does hold on every sinner responsible for their sin, but he wants the best for you. He doesn't want you to spend eternity paying for sin. That's why he sent Jesus. But maybe you're afraid of God. Maybe, maybe you're afraid of God because like Mary and Joseph, I mean, think about this. Like Mary and Joseph, you're afraid that God's going to ask you to do something that might just change the world. Do you think Mary and Joseph knew that at the time? There's no way. I mean, they were looking, they were looking at social rejection. They were looking at the loss of their reputations. They were looking at being the outcasts. They would have been the outcasts in Nazareth and of their families. Maybe you're afraid that God's going to ask you to do something that dangerous. That God might ask you to do something that requires, requires mockery and rejection, ridicule. Maybe you're afraid that God might ask you to do something that he's never asked anyone ever to do or ever will ask anyone to do it again. <coughs> maybe he's going to ask you to do something like Mary. Maybe he's going to ask you to do something like Simeon and Anna. He asked them to wait. And they waited a long time for the promise of God to be fulfilled before they saw it. And that, that loved one you've been praying for hasn't gotten saved yet. God's just saying, wait. That job you've been praying for hasn't happened yet. God is just saying, wait. That child who's wandered far from God, hasn't come back to God yet. And God is just saying, wait. What are you afraid of? The command. The command is stop being afraid. Why? Because fear, sinful fear, and godly joy are mutually exclusive. Sinful fear and godly joy cannot abide in the same heart. So what does the angel say now? He says unto them, Behold, here's our vernacular, listen up! That's, I mean, 
That's that's kind of this is an intention getting phrased. And, and <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the angel wants these guys to pay attention. So, all right. Listen up, listen. I know it's difficult. Sometimes we just need to God to get our attention. Like these shepherds. And we need to be reminded of this. You can stop being afraid now. Jesus is born. Listen up. You can stop being afraid now. Stop. Because Jesus is here. And Jesus literally changes everything. Now that's good news. As a matter of fact, it's good news that brings mega joy. That's the word great. Mega. So I'm kind of being trendy today. Mega joy, all right? <laughs> we have Christ. Why don't we have joy? Let's look at our text. Because there are some indications here. Some clear reasons for us to have great joy. Well, first of all, just the good news itself. Notice, notice when the angel is saying, he says, I'm bringing you good tidings. Literally, that is the word. I am evangelizing you. I am telling you the gospel. Jesus is born. Now the gospel, what is that? The gospel is the good news that Christ came to take away sin from sinners who repent and come home to God. If you're here today not sure that you're a part of God's family, I have very good news for you. He wants to adopt you he wants to take you into his family. He, make, he wants to make you one of his own children. Now, some people would say, yeah, but God wouldn't be interested in a, in a person like me. I promise you, you're exactly who God wants in his family. These shepherds, the first people, the first people to whom this new birth is revealed, outside of Mary and Joseph, of course, the first the first people to hear the announcement of the birth. I mean, they were the outcasts of society. They, they lived by themselves in the fields. They didn't necessarily have families that they would go home to. They were kind of, they were looked down on by society. Those are the kind of people Jesus is sent to bring into his family. say this I think sometimes I think sometimes we don't realize how good the news is 
because we don't realize how bad we are and how much we need. You see, the Bible describes us as sinners. It doesn't mean you've committed every kind of sin you can commit. It does mean you're capable of it. And it does mean you're responsible for it. But if you're sick of your sin, And everything else you've tried hasn't worked. And what I mean, you've tried to, you've tried to get rid of your guilt and you've got to try to get rid of your shame. <clears throat> and you've prayed prayers and you've gone to church and you've done good works and you've, you've done this and you've done that. You've tried to, you, listen, you need Christ. You see, this, this news is for Everyone who will believe. Good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. What does it do? It breaks the curse. What curse? The curse that came because of sin. And see, here's one of those things. I don't think we understand how far reaching and, and uh, horrible this curse really is. This curse means that you and I will be punished for our sin for all eternity. That's not good news. That's bad news. We deserve to be punished as sinners for all eternity. But the good news is God doesn't want that to happen to anyone. So he sent Jesus so that if you will come to Christ and trust him as your Lord and Savior, pleading for his forgiveness, he will make you one of his own. He'll break the curse. We have a Savior. <clears throat> Do you enjoy being a child of God? Do you really? Do you enjoy being in the family of God. I, I know sometimes, and I, I, I preach this to myself many times before I preach it to you, okay? So I've had to do some repenting, and I probably will have to do some more before the day's over. But do we really enjoy our salvation? Our freedom? Show you another reason we ought to have joy. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Notice what does the angel say to them? Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Now that's Bethlehem. What does that matter? Well, that's exactly where God said it would happen in Micah 5 2. That thou have Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little amongst the nations. Yet from thee, the Savior will be born. One shall come. He will be the Christ. 
So God keeps his promises. And notice he brings David in there. And these people would need to know that because the promised one was Messiah who would be in the line of David. We see that in Luke chapter one. But there's some Old Testament texts that talk about that as well. There's 2 Samuel chapter seven, verse number 12 and 13. And when thy days, this is God speaking to David, and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall go to the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now that couldn't be Solomon because Solomon couldn't be king forever. Later on down in verse number 16 of that same chapter, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Jeremiah puts it a little more clearly. Behold the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch in his family tree, all right? And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. God keeps his promises. And he keeps them to you. That doesn't mean he keeps them in your timetable. It doesn't mean he does everything the way you think it ought to be done. But I tell you what it does mean. It does mean he will do all he knows is best for you. So we have the gospel, the good news, that ought to bring us joy. God keeps his promises, that ought to bring us joy. Look at the next thing he says. He will be a savior, which is Christ the Lord. Jesus is in charge. He's the master. Now let me ask you something, and I don't, you don't have to answer me out loud, obviously, but I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with God, all right? How are you doing at making your life work? How are you doing at making your own life work? You say, well, everything right now is going pretty good, all right? Let me ask you something. What about when you get the cancer diagnosis or there's a death of a dear friend or family and and you don't have answers. Can you handle life then? Well, I say, I, you know, I'll just pull out my bootstrap. You know what? Your bootstraps aren't tight enough or long enough to handle life without God. There will come a time when you will need God. And you know what? It's just best to say, okay, God. You're in charge. You can do it better than I can. And then finally, and actually, I know you're not going to believe this, but this is where I've been going with this whole message. No, the other part wasn't it, so the introduction but close to it. Right? Ultimately, the reason for joy is that God was glorified. 
song they sing, and I do believe they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I am convinced that one of the reasons that we do not live in joy is that we are not living the way that God intended. We are in a broken world and it affects everything. The curse affects everything. The curse was the result of treason and mutiny. And it continues to promote treason and mutiny against God. We refuse to live under the control of our Creator. So we continue this broken, self-centered way of life. And we have no joy. Now, I talked to you about this before, but let me just remind you, this is kind of the definition that I think <coughs> helps us understand a picture of joy. It is uninhibited delight in God. Uninhibited delight in God. Everybody do this with me. Hold up your two fingers. Everybody, please. All right, now I'm glad to see some of you awake. Hold up two fingers. Right, bring them. And you need two fingers. You have two. Right, bring them right here. They're ready to push up. And that's the first time some of you smiled since we started. Well, I admit that I did. I'm a Christian. I'm saved, sanctified, galvanized, pastorized. <laughs> Get over yourself, buddy. That really represents Christ, doesn't it? Uninhibited. You do a word study on the word joy in the Old Testament, you're going to find some words that might even make you uncomfortable. So, some of the words that are translated joy in our English Bible, in the Hebrew, they mean to jump, they mean to spin around. There's a, an expression of joy outwardly. I think you know me well enough to know that I love my grandson. Right? I delight in my grandson. I love watching him learn new things. I love his infectious giggle. I love how his whole body laughs when he laughs. I love when he says, Papa. I delight in my grandson. Now, I'm going to ask you to stretch your imagination here. All right. I want you to try to imagine that Ezra is a sinner. I know that's tough. <laughs> but it's true. Now work with me, all right? 
There are times when Ezra wants what Ezra wants, even though I know it's not good for him or safe for him. And at those times, I try to redirect his little eyes, his eyes, his thinking. I correct him, but he doesn't know that I want the best for him. All he knows is that what he wants is what he wants, so he doesn't exactly respond sometimes with, thank you, Bob. You're right, Bob. I love you, Bob. Now, he responds with, well, you get the picture. <laughs> There's sometimes a verbal sound of disagreement and a visible show of disagreement that he is not getting his way. But don't we do the same thing to God, our Father? He knows what is best. He loves us more than we can even imagine. And when God redirects, God sees pain. And by the way, he loves you and he'll never stop loving you. But the same love that adopts us afflicts us. And he's a good heavenly father. But we don't always respond in that way. We <laughs> express our despair and disagreement. We visibly show our despair and disagreement. Whatever it looks like and sounds like for you, when you and I want our own way, whatever that is, it's robbing us of our joy and of our delight in God. Not trusting in what God has allowed in your life is the absolute best that God has for you, has robbed you of your joy. Not seeing God as good and right and perfect and worthy of praise has robbed us of our joy. Wanting our own way has robbed us of our delight in God. Not letting God be all he is and who he is has robbed us of our joy. The fact is, some of us at times ask the same question that is asked three times, twice in Psalm 42, and one time in Psalm 43. And here's the question. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? The term cast down there means to be forcibly bent over. In other words, the pressure is so heavy. There's so much that we're just bent over in agony. We're bent over in despair. We're bent over in anger. We're bent over in bitterness. And disquieted, the literal word, literal definition, it, it means to break the sound waves with great decibels. It's that what's going on in your soul right now. You are so bent over in the despair and the sadness and, and, the, and, and the heartbreak and, and all that's going on. It's just ringing in your ears so that you can't hear 
God. In Psalm 42, in Psalm 43, the psalmist answers his own question. Why art thou cast down on my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Here's the answer. Hope in God. Now many of us would say we're hoping for an end to this trial. We're hoping for this person to get well. We're hoping for this disease to go away. We're hoping for relief. But you know what? Sometimes those things don't come. Do they? But there's always God. There is always God. You may be familiar with Psalm 42. It starts out this way. As the heart or the deer pants after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. How do you hope in God when you stay thirsty for him? You stay desperate and thirsty for God. This is the picture of a deer that's in dry places. And he's running from, he's running for his life. He's being pursued. And he needs just, he's thirsty, he just needs a drink. And, and I wonder sometimes if we get that, ever get that way for God. We just need God that, not in the sense of, well, I've tried everything else. Let's try God. No, God is not a spare time. God's your only hope. So stay thirsty. And then he goes on in verse number four. Listen to this. In verse number four, he says, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitudes. I went to them, went with them to the house of God. Wow, look at that. Joy is directly connected with corporate worship. Gathering with God's people. Why? Because we are to edify, encourage, and build up one another. Saturate your mind and your heart with God, verse 6 and 7. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore will I remember thee from the land of Jordan and of the Hermonites, from the hill of Mizar, deep calleth unto the deep. At the noise of thy water spouts, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. The picture here is, <coughs> the picture here is of the river Jordan flowing down from Mount Hermon going over the rocks and the cliffs and it's tumbling and it's bubbling and it's, it's falling and it's rough and it's rugged territory. And the sound would be booming and hissing and echoing through the caverns. The picture is that life is just overwhelming. The picture is that life is just moving on at such a pace that you can't keep up. <clears throat> and you're going to drown if you don't get help. 
And that's where some of us are today. Saturate your mind and your heart with God. Now, verse number eight. Let's put a G on the end of that. Sing, not sin. Sin will bring you joy, I promise. <laughs> verse number eight says this. Listen. Yet the Lord will command his love and kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song shall be <coughs> in the night. That's where some of us are living right now, in the darkness. You know what you need to do? Sing. Joy to the world. The Lord is God. Let earth receive her king. Sing. Sing songs that point you to him. Sing songs that, songs that focus you and your heart on God. And then speak truth to yourself. Listen to verses 9 through 11. I will say unto God, my rock, why hast thou forgotten me? Why do I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a sword in my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say daily unto me, Where is thy God? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me, in turmoil within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. Speak truth to yourself. What is truth? Well, truth is that there is injustice in the world. We live in a cursed world. There will be times where you will be falsely accused, mistreated, treated unjustly. <coughs> Speak truth to yourself. Jesus came to make everything right. And it may not even be made right in your lifetime, but I promise you, if you know Christ one of these days, everything is going to be right. Maybe even speak truth. Look, you obviously speak truth. Maybe even when you get to the point when it feels like God doesn't love you anymore. Jesus got to that point. Remember when he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's the only one who could ever legitimately say that God turned his back on him. You and I can't say that, but Jesus could because God did. God is for you if you know him. God is on your side if you know him. God is not out to get you if you know him. But do we enjoy him? Do we right now? Are you right now experiencing in your heart mega joy? I have to admit to you, when I read you that poem, at the beginning, I did not read the whole thing. Because when Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote that poem, he did the same thing these psalms do. 
He spoke truth to himself. He reminded himself of truth. He <coughs> found his hope in God. And this is what he wrote. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. By the way, I don't think he was talking about the north and the south where the right and the wrong. They are capitalized, if you notice. He's naming evil and God, Christ, right. Is fear robbing you of your delight in God today? <clears throat> 